0: trio to do this with screenheads. is that
1: what our viewers are called <laughs> i don't know we should come up with something we i need want it some something sh-
0: yeah meaningers or i don't know we'll figure it out re-
1: real real rebels r-e-e-l jerry's
0: they could be our jerry's because you know show me the meaning is supposed to be like show me the money from jerry mcguire just an idea. We'll, we'll we'll talk. We'll get
1: there. And speaking of all the people that listen to this podcast and participate in this lovely community of discussion and appreciation with us, uh, we do want to say a huge shout-out to everyone who voted on our poll on Patreon to let us know what they wanted us to cover next. Uh, you won. We're doing it today. Um, but if you're watching this live stream, Tomorrow, we're going to put up another poll for our next episode, so make sure to vote. We're going to have it on our Twitter, which is just at Wisecrack. The Twitter will give you a link to our Patreon. Now, you might be thinking, well, I can't vote because I'm not a Patreon, and to that I say, you can vote. This is a democratic process, one person, one vote, whether or not you are a patron. So please check that out if you're on the live stream right now. It's going to be up tomorrow. You can vote at Wisecrack, and you can determine what we do you could pick just the stupidest movie and if you all vote we have to do it
0: can, can we even vote if we're a host on the show <laughs> I, I
1: i think
2: that it would be antithetical to democracy if you couldn't right. i got so. all kinds of burner accounts too so i'm gonna totally staff uh, no stuff no bots. no
1: bots bots <laughs> i'm investigating um i will get into the investigation afterwards but because of the patreon poll last time we have decided they have decided 1917 so today we're talking about sam mendez's uh 20 did it was it officially released in 2019 right yeah yeah, so 2019 film 1917 that takes place on one day in 1917. Before we get really into it, I want to hear our initial thoughts. Ryan, what are your initial thoughts, feelings about 1917?
0: Oh boy! So Sam Mendes, one of my favorite filmmakers, American Beauty, I changed my life. Like uh, mm. I love that. That was like the first script I wrote, read that 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 I really was like, oh, I can make movies one day, and mm. um. Uh, so I love the fuck out of Sam Mendes, it, even though Alan Ball wrote the script, but whatever. Um, the, 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 the movie was directed well. I love him. Um, so I was so psyched about this movie, and especially him, the idea of him doing another war movie, because I love Jarhead. That's probably my second favorite Sam Mendes movie.
1: Underrated movie.
0: Yeah, for real. One of the best. Um, I love war movies in general, so super stoked for this. And then I hear it's a one-take movie. Right, I hear that kind of, but way before, um, after I'd seen the trailer, and then I'm rewatching the trailer. I'm like, how in the fuck is this gonna be a one take movie? You yeah. know, like they're in a bunker, they're they're all over the fucking place, um, and how is this gonna be one take? And I'm like, are they just literally gonna be walking from place to place? And I was right. They, they, there is a shit ton of walking in this movie. Um, uh, and it's unbroken obviously. And it was, it's, it's clearly a a really bold choice in a a cool way. We've never seen a war movie before. So I I think the, uh, I agree with kind of the overarching or, the overarching uh, reviews of this movie are, wow, what a spectacle. And that mm. is basically what my review is. It's like, mm. it's I separate it into two categories. It's like, this is an, an amazing achievement in cinema. Just the fact that this exists, it's, it's cool. What it's kind of saying in a way, or n- not even what it's saying, but just how the aesthetic portrays war. Like, you know, you're with a soldier every moment of a mission, which is something we've never seen. And, um, you know, it has a really cool cinematic effect. However, I would say that emotionally, Uh, this movie kind of left me wanting more. It was a little cold, like like in terms of the story, in terms of the characters. I wish there was a lot more character development, which I know is hard to do in a freaking one take. Um, But I wish there was, I wish we got to know our characters more. I wish kind of I felt more when he finally made it, even though, you know, I I did feel something, but it just, I don't know. I, I kind of, I was left lacking in that department. Like, I don't think it's an amazing. Uh, yeah emotional experience I think it's an incredible cinematic experience first and foremost but that's all you need really in my opinion uh, uh, it would have been great if it was both but uh, that's kind of my overall feelings on this film and and then in terms of all much uh, also uh, just touching on the realism I I, like for a movie that uh, kind of is was is all about the realism of war I thought that there was some kind of things where it was too movie-ish like you know there's a lot of him running away from bullets when he clearly should have been shot you know like kind of towards the end when he when it's when when the sun's coming up and stuff like it like like that's something you see in like a a James Bond movie you know where uh uh, I didn't I thought it was a little out of place in this film also him getting stabbed by the pilot that was kind of a bizarre (laughs) way for that one character to go spoiler alert um but anyway overall great movie nine out of okay, ten great
1: great uh that's good there's so much for us to unpack later i'm so excited making mental notes austin from the land down under what did you think about 1917 initial
0: thoughts
2: go. after everything that ryan said i'm surprised you gave it a nine out of ten still um uh, yeah I okay you
0: gonna... I, uh, nine out of ten cinematic achievement uh maybe even ten out of ten overall maybe seven and a half
2: <laughs> okay yeah um form without content is empty Content without form is fucking chaos. I think this film is uh, form-heavy, and it's technically proficient and masterful. But content-wise, I found it a little bit lacking. I think characters are a little bit underdeveloped. And I think the film really rests on us kind of already being emotionally invested in... The history, not just of war per se, but also of war films, you know, because it's got that like Saving Private Ryan, go save your brother kind of thing. So agreeing with me. Yeah, it's still it's. Yeah, I think so, because it's like laterally referring to cinema. But but obviously the choice to make it appear as a single long take is brilliant in a war setting. I don't think that's been done before. Obviously you've got Birdman and you've got like Victoria, which, well, Victoria was a real single take. Um, uh, you've got that horror film with the Olsen. Uh, was it Elizabeth Olsen that was in that horror film? You, and I can't remember. Was, that it was, was a, it Mary
1: like, Marlene, Elizabeth, uh, Sally and Kara. And,
2: and <laughs> no, there was, there was some film. I can't remember what it was. I think it was a horror film that I, I, maybe it wasn't her. Maybe it was somebody else. Um, It was a blonde, a blonde actress. I can't remember who it was. I, I, it's blum blanking right now but so i like that idea i dig that vibe but this one just felt me or left me feeling um, just just lacking a little bit i mean i think i also went in with really high expectations as it being nominated for best picture so i was expecting kind of a typical academy award really kind of emotional uplifting sentimental heroic kind of story and um, and the weird thing is, is i actually don't think that we got much of that even though i don't like like saccharin kind of over-sentimentalized films, I don't think we actually got enough pathos. We didn't get enough passion. We didn't get enough uh, emotion to to really latch onto unless you just kind of impose all of that other stuff because war and the the issues of them kind of like the anxieties that are induced in us because of the time, the, the ticking clock and things like that. But I don't know. It just didn't fully work for me at the level of content. But obviously, technically, fucking brilliant.
1: Great. And just quickly to wrap up, I'll say I, too, love Dunkirk and mm. thought that um, kidding. Uh, i kidding. <laughs> I'm kind of I guess somewhere between y'all and this. I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. L- like you said, Austin, I, you hear so much about this movie leading into it that you can't not have a pretty hefty set of expectations. Uh, and of course, mm. the trailer yeah. really gives away quite a few of the money shots. So, you know, a few things are coming and you're kind of waiting for those moments. I enjoyed the experience of being in the theater and seeing it, and I think everyone should go do that. Uh, having time to reflect on it, I kind of think it was it was fine uh, as a film. I think that it was a, a incredible visual spectacle, and we, you know, we talked about Deacon's last week on the podcast, and talking about him again this week, of course, uh, cinematically, and what goes on with the cinematography is stunning and, and should be awarded. But I was just left wondering what, what was I supposed to feel? What were the ideas being explored? And and does this add anything new to the long history of movies about wars? Maybe there's stuff there. I'm excited to get into it and talk about it a bit more. But something that I can't help but think about is uh is a bit of a spoiler, but we have a, a video coming out soon on the channel about the Oscars in general and why the Oscars kind of suck. <laughs> and one of the things that comes up in hey, the video I like is this the idea. Oscars. Well, they don't always suck. I mean, I'm going to watch them. But one of the issues is the Oscars have a tendency to reward certain types of films mm. and, and maybe punish other films. And in a lot of cases, the films we look back on 30 years later that, that were genre-defining or game-changing weren't even nominated or didn't win. And sometimes we look back at the movies that won and we're like, oh, Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, 100%. Great. Um, and I think this movie falls into one of those things where it's it's like it's like Oscar bait. You know? It's like, ooh, the, a war. And and Sam Mendes. Oh, yeah. I would call this one an Oscar bait
0: movie. I mean, the, the oh, one, the, the, the one, ta- anything historical. You're doing it. The one track um, thing, the one take thing, is like a i think propels it above oscar bait movie yes you know? yes
1: yes yes that's fair that's fair i'm just being i'm being salty okay uh <laughs> but i liked it a lot i'm excited to break it down before we get into it though you've been listening to us talk about our takes in case you haven't seen it or you saw it a while ago and you forgot um let's run through a summary of the film real quick before we get into it so 1917, the film opens with two buddies taking a nap in a field, and before we zoom out, it looks very peaceful. We have Lance Corporal Will Schofield, the, the handsomer one, and Lance Corporal Blake, uh, the sort of young one that tells funny stories to keep his friends going. One of their captains shows up. Maybe he's a captain, maybe he's a corporal. I don't know all the, the, the ranks, and he says, wake up, take a friend. He points at his bud and says, you. He thinks they're going somewhere to maybe get a snack. This kid loves food. <laughs> they get to command... And and, and and we hear that there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a mission they got to go take care of. The Germans seem to be retreating, but they're not retreating. The Germans have set a trap, uh, uh, the, the, the second armory commandment, something like that commandment. That's not a thing. Um, they're heading into it. His Lance Corporal Blake's brother is there. We got to get this note to them, so they stop. It's a very important mission. and they leave immediately. So there you go. We're going uh, down. What, what do we call it again? The holes, the trenches, the path. Yes, the trenches. The trenches. We are in the trenches. It's very intense. It's almost like a, a walk and talk through New York City, except you're in a trench. Uh, the The first sort of sage guide we see along the way is the hot priest from Fleabag. Uh, he's there. He's kind of funny. He's got jokes and flares. And next thing you know, our guys are on a mission. We're leaving the trench. We're climbing over dead bodies. There's dead horses. We're going around a waterway and then we end up in a German bunker as our boys go in the German bunker and explore. Once again, one friend looking for food. He's hungry. Um, a rat sets off a bomb. One of our buds, Will, gets buried alive. Blake gets him up, takes him out, thinks he's okay. They find a cute little farm and drink some milk to relax, but just as they're getting hydrated off that cow's teat juice, they see planes fighting. There's a dogfight going on and the good guys win. They take down a German plane that plane happens to crash basically right on top of them because I guess they don't know how war works they help the German pilot out and try to get him some water uh, in the intervening moments German pilot grabs his knife and stabs the hungry boy to death uh, we have a, a last moment where Schofield and Blake are there together looking at a picture of his family and he cuddles him as he goes into the great beyond now we got one guy alone to carry on this mission now right after this happens he gets picked up by another crew of soldiers does a little ride along hears them doing some fun impression work but eventually has to go it alone he he ends up in a gunfight with a lone german in a tower in a bombed out french town Ends up maybe killing him, also getting shot, falling down, getting getting a concussion. We can talk later about what him. actually happens there. He kills him. There's this blackout. He comes to, and bam, flares are going off. There's bombs. He's working his way through this bombed-out town. Magically ends up in a basement with a French woman and a baby she found, as one does. Gives her all his food, so Hungry Boy was getting held out on the whole time finally works his way out of bombed out french town this part's pretty intense he probably should have got shot he didn't jumps into a river does a little raging rapids goes down a waterfall but he ends up at the forest he was supposed to be at all along all of his urgency leads him to sit down and listen to some singing for about five minutes this is a
0: moment by moment recap (laughs) mike (laughs) jesus
1: yes we're almost done um my recap thus far has been <laughs> less than some of the initial thoughts from y'all, so don't get me started. I'm I keeping just, very close I'm sorry, time. I'm, over. I'm sorry. Not gonna say who. Uh, me. We're almost there. Okay. Finally, he finds Doctor Commander's Doctor Strange and lets him read the letter. Benedict Cumberbatch calls it off. But it's basically too late. A bunch of people have already gone out. He's maybe saved a thousand lives. And at the very end, he finds his dead homie's brother, who's actually uh, a part of the Stark family, but we can get into that later. <laughs> gives him the rings, walks over, and Schofield sits against a tree where we first saw him. Looks at a picture of his wife and two daughters, who we learn that he's had this whole time we never heard of him. Closes his eyes, and the film ends sorry for my long summary, no. no, no. He, he, here's, right.
0: here's how i would have done the recap two oh two, thanks. two soldiers get told to go tell somebody something and then they walk and they do it the end okay so <laughs> you know what we'll
1: we'll put both those in this podcast it'll be a choose your own adventure you'll hit a button on your phone and you'll get one of those um now now before we get into this this movie might have made some people feel sick there's some grotesque violence, it's real, you see a lot of stuff. And and last week I was feeling sick, not because of the movie, it got a little stomach bug, and I had a sick day. And when I was at home, you know when you're sick and you want to like watch something, listen to something, um, I just did the thing where for an hour I'm I'm looking around, what should I watch? What should I watch? And I'm wasting time. And I wasted time because I wasn't using Likewise. I don't know if y'all know about Likewise, but I know. it's the only it's it's this great app. Uh and it's the only app that you need and that I need to discover what to watch or listen to or read next. Now it's free to use and download. So you can right now look up likewise, download, it's free. And it allows you to search across all of your different streaming services to find stuff to watch. And it even has lists that that are curated by people with tastes that are like yours or your friends can make their own list. And it lets you know what's coming to, uh, to every platform each month. Because sometimes I do the thing where I realized a movie I love was like on Amazon or Netflix the day before it goes off. Um, so it's really cool. You can build community in terms of getting recommendations and even like celebrities get on there and tell you what they're reading and watching. So that's kind of fun. I'm always like, what is John legend watching? I want to watch it too. It learns from what you like because technology is smart and it's going to kill us one day and it makes better recommendations. So it learns what you should do. And the more you use it, the better it gets. And what you could even do, and you don't have to do this, but when you download it, you can add Show Me the Meaning to your list so your friends know this is a podcast you like, and it can also recommend other podcasts of a similar ilk. Although I mean, are there others at this level? I don't know. Um, now, it also supports recommendations for books, podcasts, even restaurants. You ever do that thing where are like, where should I eat? Likewise is going to tell you. So download Likewise today. You can do it on the App Store. You can do it on the Google Play Store. And what we want you to do as well, go to likewise.com slash meaning. It's going to hook you up, okay? So go to likewise.com slash meaning, download the app, start using it, add Show Me the Meaning, and never be a dumb idiot like me spending hours scrolling through everything and not making a decision. That said, let's get back to the war-torn fields of northern France. It's time to get into it. Let's yeah. break down 1917. Does anyone have anything they they wanted to get started with? If not, I got I got I got heat to throw, but
0: well, let's let's see what the boys oh, are thinking. You got
1: heat. I I don't at all. I'm just oh. I'm just acting
0: tough. I I, I guess my uh, um question to y'all is uh uh in terms of how did the aesthetic work for you? The, in terms of the the one take, the walking, the like and for one or two uh have you guys seen g- many Gus Van Sant movies.
2: Yeah, yeah, I've seen, yeah, I've seen quite a few. What were you thinking? Yeah,
0: I'm thinking, like, he, he was the filmmaker on my mind during most of this. Like, this movie was like Gus Van Sant's wet dream. You know, it's like, he's the master or the he loves using the just i'm following somebody tracking shot like uh, like we're walking behind somebody and mm-hmm. like like there's this one scene in um what's it called like paranoid park where like you're literally walking behind somebody while they well, while they're walking down a trail to a beach and you see the beach off in the distance and in my head i'm like we're going to walk down that whole fucking beach or this whole <laughs> thing aren't we we're going right. to see every step yeah, yeah. of this and we do and it takes us several minutes you know, and I'm kind of like, this yeah. is a way to, I guess, this is a way to film, you know, a walk, or you could have just cut to him on the beach like a normal movie, right? But like, uh, well, like Van Sant's not interested in that, and neither is Sam Mendes in this movie, and it, but here
2: it, there's a purpose. Um, what did, you, how did it work for y'all? Well, see, with Van Sant, I think there's a purpose too because his films are very plotting and contemplative, right? Um, and this one is not. Uh, it's not plotting or contemplative. But I think the the reason that it's so interesting that we just kind of simply follow them through everything is there are a couple of things. One is we always see the world As they see the world, not through their eyes, but rather we see their response to the world. That's how we see the world that they navigate through. So it creates this really interesting, like, subjective experience. You know, we're not just seeing a battle. We're seeing their fear of the battle or their apprehension of going into this situation. And so we're constantly kind of fed how to respond in a way which I think heightens the emotional anxiety and I think that's one of the things that's really beneficial about this type of, of format of being so focused on like a kind of subjective view rather than objective view and then when mm-hmm. you add that into the ticking clock where there's a countdown You know, I think it takes place over the period of about eight hours, but the film is, like, you know, not eight hours long, Um, and it's condensed, so you get this compressed... I I like how Michael called it Dunkirk because it kind of plays with the form of time itself, right? And it kind of condenses everything, and when you condense... The, the atrocities of war and all the anxieties of being someone thrown into these impossible situations and when you condense it into a really short time period you add that ticking clock you add the subjective experience then what you get is this, this really sort of um, empathic type of... Immersive is the word that I guess all the reviews are saying, so I, we might as well use the word immersive. Immersive experience into this situation that really heightens the tensions and all of the conflicts and all of the fears and the frustrations and the pain and things like that. Yeah. So so I think, formally speaking, it was very effective in doing that. Mm. Yeah, I agree.
1: I, I, I really like your point, Austin, about the subjective perspective that you're in while watching the film. And I was thinking throughout, like in a normal film, we normally have an A plot and some sort of B plot or other side stories. So we have this objective view where we see what's happening in other characters' lives. We know things that our protagonists don't. So we have this God's eye view and we can worry about what's coming or know more than they do. But we only know what they know throughout the entire film. I mean, yeah. obviously, we know how World War One ends. But, <laughs> um, but and that adds to this yeah. intensity throughout. And the film is set up. Yeah, we're learning. That we know we're learning with so them. much. Yeah we're, yeah, yeah, we're learning throughout. We're, Exactly. And even the characters themselves, the way they, they change throughout the story, especially um, the, the character uh, Lance Corporal Will Schofield, we really see him change a lot. We see so many uh, emotional sides and responses of this person such that we, we even see him at one point go from, you know, I think he's like reading, uh, not reading, but reciting some sort of poem to a little French baby. And two seconds later, he's choking out a, a German guy. Um, yeah and we we see but we see that like back to back in a way that doesn't break and and I know I really found that valuable and of course I think I probably bring this up every third movie we talk about which is my bad but I like movies that make me feel a little bit anxious and in this movie I caught myself because of I think the shots and the tracking putting my hands over my face kind of like leaning down in my seat a little bit turning to the side and I, I enjoy that from an experiential perspective a lot
0: I, uh, you, you, you had mentioned Mike that you, uh, uh, that he changes a lot. Like h- how, how, would you say he changed? Cause to me, he, you know, he obviously goes through the terrible, you know, war, he goes through fucking war. So it's like, like mm-hmm. uh moment to moment, but it seems like he's been through war. It's just like, this is yeah. like, we're here with him through this one mission and it's cool to get you know every moment of it. Yeah.
1: Here's what I think. I, yeah, I think the way to call me out, I'm um, not calling you, question. No, no, no. It. Yeah, no, I like it. I'm really complimenting it. I guess what it makes me think of, you ever done that thing where you have a friend and maybe you hang out with a friend in like normal settings, you get after work drinks or get lunch with them occasionally. And then you go on, on a weekend trip or you go camping and you see how this person is maybe when they're cranky in the morning, when yeah. they haven't had their coffee, when mm. they get a sunburn, when they drink too much. And you st- it's the same person, but you're having this experience of different sides of them. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the film, it was like that. Mm-hmm. I had this condensed experience of... You know, what is Schofield like when he's kind of confident and tired? What is he like when he's scared? What is he like when he's feeling full resolve? Where is his humanity and compassion? And I think, too, even the moment where the whole film, when he kind of talks about not wanting to take his leave, trading in his medal for a bottle of wine, which I think is kind of a sick move. Yeah. um, (laughs) Throughout, it's like, oh, this guy doesn't want to go home because he's just here. He's in it. He doesn't, maybe he doesn't have a family. But, of course, he does, like, he has a, a, a lovely wife and two daughters back home. We get an end why he, he cares so much when he meets the French woman and her baby. Mm. So I guess it's just that he doesn't change, but our perspective of this character changes as we see him react to different moments in different situations. Do yeah, you that's
2: think a good that, way to put it. Yeah, do, I mean, do you think that it kind of also opens us up to uh, like a larger idea that he's he's obviously a single character, but he maybe represents a larger trend of these men who were fighting in these trenches like like there's no there's no sense in which he is a hero's hero right he's mm-hmm. thrown into an impossible situation and he kind of he kind of has to it's not like he's there like i am fighting for you know, queen and country sort of thing, or king and country, whoever it was at that time. Um, it's not like that's what he's doing. He's he's kind of thrown into an impossible situation. He's making the most of it, but at the same time, I've I listened to a little bit of uh, some interviews with Mendez, who this film is like loosely based on his grandfather, and then yeah. some other people that were talking about this that that there was like this sense that a lot of British young men had that this was going to be an adventure that we were just going to go and win, right? Like mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't. It, there was a, almost like a romanticized adventurous spirit that was tied into going to these fronts rather than it being exclusively we're going to fight does that make sense And I feel like he kind of is thrown into this experience because he's still got that lingering adventurism that he's trying to make this an adventure. But at the same time, what maybe we're introduced to by seeing his reaction to the landscapes is we're more introduced to the horrors and the realities of war as he's thrown into the very front lines. And especially that final sequence where he's running – he's not even in the fucking trench. He's running alongside no man's land, right? And, yeah, God, and that scene was good. It's crazy because it 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 kind of it it takes your breath away but it forces you to really kind of come face to face with the intensities of the realities of this situation that his maybe lingering adventurism and his like I'm going to make the most of it kind of thing and I'm going to just drink wine and I don't know if I want to go home sort of th- I mean maybe there's something that we that we're kind of like working through as uh, as we're exposed to these different contexts, you know?
1: Well, I think a question I have for both of y'all then would be, you know, th- this isn't the first movie about war, nor will it be the last. Like, war films are, are a genre unto themselves. So, something I wonder is, you know, does this movie have anything to say about war? Is it adding something to that long conversation about war that's taken place in cinema? Is, is Mendes, is, is he bringing a particular perspective? What, what, what did y'all think about that? And how do you situate this movie in terms of of the
0: war film as a genre, I, I think that c- kind of like I said at the beginning, like like a lot of war movies, c- because they're not in single takes, you know, they're dealing with the themes of war, the you know the the overarching brutality of it but 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 this is like getting you into the nitty-gritty and literally figuratively into the trenches of war Mm -hmm. moment by moment so i do think that literally the the form is the message the medium is the message the the one take is the message of the movie which is just like like it's it's more of an experience it's a ride of a film rather, rather than a intellectual take on war i think where it's like it's like people this is what people went through it's like a biopic of the of every person who had to go on a mission like this in in war and and you're seeing it through their eyes so i yeah it's yeah it's more like a ride so in your
1: mind it, it kind of like gave you that subjective experience of the horrors and intensity of war in a way where it wasn't too hollywood or cinematic you, where, you were where, which
0: you've never seen before so which i yeah. think is a statement you know in and of itself yeah,
2: yeah. Austin, what do you think i mean i think there are a couple of assumptions that i thought were interesting about war and, um, you know, I actually was just messaging Michael off air before this. There's an essay by this philosopher named Frank Ruda on courage that I think is a really interesting thing because this is one of those themes that has probably been either ignored or maligned, I would say, uh, in a in a post-20th century women's rights uh, emergence of feminism kind of world, right? Where courage might be viewed as ah, just this masculine kind of bullshit, like macho, like manly man kind of thing right and so ruta really works through like these different philosophical ideas really going back to aristotle about courage as a virtue for aristotle which mm-hmm. is the, the the mean the average between foolhardiness which is like where you're just crazy and you just run out and um you've got your weapon think of think of the machine gun guy in uh oh not a uh, what am i thinking full metal jacket right who's actually a buddy of mine by the way Um, but uh, like where he's just like ah fucking god you know he's just killing Charlie right and he's like having a great time doing it like that guy's kind of crazy there's no rational basis but then there's cowardice on the other end at the other extreme which is where you just stay home and you're afraid but courage for Aristotle is that middle between the two but it has to be based on like this rational knowledge that you know that you're in the right or that what you're doing is defending the city for Aristotle or you know defending your family maybe as we're oftentimes fed this idea. Um, And Ruta really works through that and kind of problematizes that and says, well, maybe we shouldn't, and I don't want to talk too much about it. If you're interested, you can find the essay. But maybe we can think of virtue in a different way, what he calls following Wendy Brown, like feminist courage or feminine courage. Can we do that? Can we think about a courage that isn't just like I'm in the right and I know what is right and I'm just simply defending the right. So you have like your presupposition of what is right and then you defend it. This film is interesting because I think the one thing it adds is it's not just simply... We know what is right and we're just defending what is right like you get maybe with certain republican, neoconservative, imperialist rhetoric that's like well, we are just defending our notions of democracy and freedom and we are in the right and whatever we do is justified because we're defending that presupposed position. This kind of doesn't do that because – um, Schofield in particular he doesn't really ever talk about how he's like so proud of country and he's there defending the virtues yeah. of I mean he go- trades
1: his medal for a bottle of wine yeah, he clearly doesn't exactly. think it's important
2: whereas it- Blake's like how oh, could you do that yeah, so it's like – but but I think we – would, we, I think we all three of us would it say but he's still courageous and maybe – and this actually fits with Ruda's redefinition that it's a courage that is precisely through and in and alongside an impossible situation that induces anxiety and that's the type of courage. Like the decision that he's made, he's kind of forced into and then he has to kind of commit himself to the decision to overcome or to survive or to whatever, to do his duty in this instance. And so maybe there's something, you know, maybe in the Kantian sense, you know, that you've got like this moral duty to to fulfill. There's something going on here that's an interesting take on war courage, I think.
1: I, well, and that I, seems to line up with the subjectivity thing we've talked about before in that in a lot of films we see, like, the battalion who are all kind of bravely committed to the ideal that they're fighting for in this kind of objective one-way street. Right, right. Whereas here we have, a, for the most part, for at least most of the movie, a singular character reckoning with what it means for him to be courageous, not in winning the war, but in doing one thing and yeah. getting one letter mm. to one guy. Mm. I, um, I, 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 so, sorry, uh, about Ryan.
0: I totally agree with what you guys are saying, and to to just piggyback on it a little, or uh, add a little bit to it, like the because uh, that is the one little bit of character development in the film is that or the, the big difference between the two uh, friends is that you know one of them doesn't care about the medals, you know, and which is a big statement. It's a cool character uh, thing, and um, and the other one does. So it so it's almost like the credit for like why are you doing this? Like 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 you were just saying like are you doing it? to go brag later, like you went to war and like have all these stories to tell and all these medals to show, or are you doing it because it's the right thing to do and that you're there in the moment and you know, uh, you're just living your life. And, and uh, a guy in our uh, chat, which I'm somewhat paying attention to a guy named Cedar and sound studios says uh, as an active duty military with deployments under my belt, I've known both types of people, those who want medals and ribbons and those who could care less. And and so mm. that was a really cool character moment. Oh,
2: wow. So, you know,
0: that's somebody that was there uh, uh, saying, you know, you have two different kinds of people in war. And then maybe that's kind of what this movie is 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 lightly touching on. Uh, do you while think they're, do you think that the film is making?
2: Yeah. Do you think it's kind of making an assessment, Ryan, that like. That like Schofield is more mature because he realizes maybe the 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 silliness of being so kind of invested in the patriotism or the nationalism that the that the younger character that Chapman's character I'm sorry that um yeah that Blake is in yeah
0: you keep calling it the patriotism or nationalism I I mean I I would just call it like to me it's less that it's more of just a simple behavior of of I don't know being amped up about your country well I guess that's naturalism but um I don't <laughs> yeah. know like like it, it does it sounds more nefarious I think when you put it that way but yeah I'm sorry continue though
2: no yeah I mean I just um I, I just wonder if there's almost a sense in which what we're what we're exposed to is that Schofield's character is almost at the end more mature because be first of all he's not the hungry one um and he doesn't do the stupid thing that gets himself killed um but uh but but i wonder if the maturity is precisely and let's not be so naive to think that all of that all of um our duty bound activities necessarily come from a, a, a a pre-existent sense of what is right. And that sometimes we kind of just have to do what we have to do in situations that we maybe wish we weren't in, but um, but we have to do that. And then at the end, I think what's really beautiful is when Schofield pulls out that photo, we then understand what was pushing Schofield forward. And it wasn't country. It wasn't this idea of like, I'm a, I'm living for higher principles. It was, I'm a dad and I've got a partner And I am. They they wrote a little note that's like, "Come back to us," right on the back of the photo. And it's like that is, even though maybe he's enjoying a little bit of that freedom of being away, he's kind of, uh, you know, trying to, you know, have that moment where he can have that wine and maybe get a sense of adventure and experience. Maybe through this, he even learns, fuck. Maybe I, maybe I need to just get back. And Mm. maybe it kind of justifies for him why he was courageous in his this anxious situation you know yeah
1: yeah I, I buy that. And it, yeah and i wonder as well i don't know if this connects at all but when we finally get to and i forget this character's name so i apologize but uh benedict cumberbatch's character who gives that sort of grim line about how like this is what war is if it's not today it's going to be the next time and eventually the, who wins like the last one standing it had such like a, a grim take on yeah. what this meant, and that, that really was what World War One was. And I'm sure someone will correct me because I'll get this wrong. Sorry, but I think it was like the Germans kind of just ran out of money, um, and had to fall back at a certain point. So I don't know. I thought that was there was an interesting hopelessness in there. Well, and I appreciated that in that moment there wasn't a lot of virtue given to war overall, or even the particularity of their cause, because we didn't really have any discussion of why they were at war, what what the stakes of this war were. Mm-hmm. It was just like we're on one side, they're on the other side. And, and the highest, you know, the commander we finally get to is just like, well, fuck it. Like eventually someone's going to be up and someone's going to be down. Until then,
2: this is what it is. Damn. Yeah, that is grim. I mean, I think I think here's my ignorance as a as a high schooler. That I have since I think become a little bit more educated. I thought Wait, that as the, a
1: high schooler, Austin, I thought you were much older than that.
2: Yeah, I said that totally wrong. But um, <laughs> You're uh, the smartest
1: sixteen year old <laughs> alive.
2: But when I was in high school, I think from what I remember, I was taught that like world war 1 started because some archduke was unnecessarily and randomly killed and it was like an act of terrorism right franz ferdinand like that that was the idea that like out of nowhere this guy is the, that's the and then that's what sets off then these people start fighting these people and then alliances are formed and it wasn't until many many years later where i was actually like oh actually the tensions were brewing for decades if not centuries um a lot of people refer to this as the capitalist war, the imperialist war, that what you have are these warring imperial capitalist states that are fighting over economic interests and economic territories. And so I didn't really understand the rationality behind this war. And so it was really interesting for me because the film is called 1917. And immediately when I think of the year 1917, I don't think of a British uh, trench war. I think of the Bolshevik Revolution. Now... That's my bias. That's okay. my – so I'm thinking 1917. Nerd. Yeah, 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 right? But so I'm thinking like what is this going to – and then I find out that it has nothing to do with that whatsoever at all. And so it was really interesting for me to kind of – get this introduction into a war story that was, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's – in a lot of ways I've been reading a lot about World War One too because it's kind of inspired me to kind of like rethink things and kind of consider things. But it kind of just added these different layers to what I understand about World War One, based on what I think is a really naive way that the history books and my history classes taught me what World War One was mm-hmm. about, which had like like no real rationality. But no, there is a real rationality here. We just oftentimes don't understand what that rationality is – and then this film doesn't really spend too much time exploring that explicitly but it kind of just adds other layers at like an affective and emotional and a personal individual level but I don't know that's kind of just ranty but there's just some yeah, thoughts. Yeah
1: well so I have another question for you too so I was reading a piece today it was really good I'm going to make sure I quote the piece so I'm not acting like I'm smart on my own uh, but a film critic named Adam Nayman wrote a piece about 1917 for The Ringer in which he was kind of posing like is this movie really good and, and kind of getting into the style and substance question that you brought up earlier Austin and he uh, quoted an Interview with Truffaut from the 70s where Truffaut said something to the effect of every film about war ends up being pro war a- and posing uh, this idea that it's kind of mm. impossible to make a film that isn't somehow pro war. I, I, I thought you wonder were say
0: the opposite that every film about war is anti war because that's what no, and like. that, that's, that's why that's why it surprised line. me.
2: What do
1: you what think about, about that? Thin so red he line. brought that up in the in the piece uh, in this name and piece I'm discussing. He brought oh, cool. that up in an interesting way, and he, he brought up how in the Thin Red Line, all these shots and reflections on nature kind of showed the indifference of the natural world to all of our squabbling, anyways.
2: So kind of undercut war in that way. Oh, so it gosh, was, I so, think so that cool war is viewed as being like a destruction of the the world that is indifferent that we should be embracing and attest uh, more to, and that war is precisely technology. I mean. Famously, Malik is a Heidegger scholar. He actually translated yeah, a Heidegger yeah. text. So the beauty and the romance and poetry of nature and shit like that that comes out of Heidegger's philosophy, who, by the way, was a fascist. So everybody needs to understand that. Um, but uh, coming out of his philosophy is something that Malik is kind of drawing from. And so war then is a destruction of that beauty and a destruction yeah. of that. Right.
1: But yeah, but so, and I, I might have, listen, I probably quoted that piece wrong. Probably no, said that, I'm yeah, sure, I'm you, sure said. you did. Um, but do, I mean, is there anything to this Truffaut idea that by making films about war in this way, by shooting them beautifully, by, by always having a protagonist that somehow, whether it's implicit or explicit, is on, on the good side or the side we're on or whatever... I mean, is there something inherently pro-war about making a, a war movie? I'm not saying I think this. I'm just asking the question. He, he, um, he,
0: here's what I feel like maybe I'm, I'm stretching, but uh, he's getting at in his thing is that in, in, in the quote is that war looks cool on film. And that if you're making a war movie, even if you're trying to make an anti-war uh, message, there's some kid at home going, oh, yeah. I want to go shoot guns on the battlefield. Maybe that's kind of the gist. Yeah, so if, if Truffaut is alive now, I don't think he
1: is. Uh, if he was alive now, no, he would not. be like, stop playing video games. They make you want to steal cars from people. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I just did So, um, what what other – well, we're kind of sort of slowly getting near our, our final – Um, Bunker of the day But What other thoughts Did y'all have Or things you wanted to discuss About this movie Things that are In your heart Just wanting to get out
0: Little nitpicky thing again About the kind of Pick it Movie movie part That that, uh, wasn't that realistic When he's doing that whole uh, When he's having that moment With that baby It's like dude I you got a, a whole army to save why are you sitting there looking at a baby underground you know like uh mm-hmm. in my moment in my mind i was like
2: uh the tension was high and uh he wasn't being nearly as urgent as i wanted him to be in that well moment. and he doesn't get there in time does he so maybe he shouldn't have stopped and chatted with the fucking baby and the french woman and yeah he the have whole i had a the problem whole first with that line the whole first line got fucked yeah
1: <laughs> yeah, that was just a little much that like, the I don't know. That was so that was the one point where I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I'm watching a movie Then uh, and, and, and movie stuff has to happen. And in the war movie, the, the sort of soldier dragging his ass with blood on his head has to find the like French maiden with the baby who just needs milk. And, and knows a few words and, and can say trees in English and you'll figure it out. <laughs> I was just like, okay, come on. Let me very <laughs>
0: slowly open my canteen and give you milk. You know, like yes, yeah, uh, smell hello. it first. Taking like you bomb. don't get to smell
1: my milk. You live in this bunker. You're drinking the milk. But um, yeah, I just just agreeing with that nitpick point there. Did anyone find? And this is a very shallow point. Did anyone find the use of? Well, I'll, I'll start with this. I think having both of our protagonists be actors who, um, I'm the the lead obviously that played Schofield. I've never seen him before, and then I didn't realize until. A day after I saw the movie that Lance Corporal Blake was played by uh, one of the, the the boy kings from Game of Thrones. Um, but I liked that those were largely actors that we don't know, so we weren't distracted. And it added to the realness of it. Were you all distracted by the high-level cameos that popped up like every 25 minutes? Well, the,
0: the Cumberbatch one was egregious because it's like that guy didn't need to be a, a famous movie star. And they, no. they put him in the trailer like he's a big part of the movie, you know, and he's in one scene. Yeah. yeah, and we have you know Colin Firth up top
1: as well, who's in it for what fifteen to to twenty three seconds.
0: Yeah, like um, I don't know, that that was weird. So yeah, I kind of agree that that was biz- that that they shouldn't have done that, especially if you're going for realism, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I love Andrew Scott. I have a huge man crush on him. Uh, ever he since was I so saw- good. Oh my fuck! Ever since I saw him in that <laughs> Black Mirror episode, which was what season? The last season, but episode two, the one where it's like. Uh, where uh, it's like the, the the Facebooky one with all yeah that one. Um, I was like, who the fuck is this guy? And then he's in Fleabag, and I'm like, oh fuck. And then I remembered that he's Moriarty from Sherlock, and I'm like, oh m- fuck. So, like that one, I'm okay with. Put him in everything in my mind. He's like my favorite actor at the moment. So that was cool with me. Um, you also got Mark Strong in there, right? Uh-huh. Uh, Colin Firth is in there. So, uh, I mean, we had a uh, uh, Rob Stark. Rob Stark.
1: Oh, that's the, the I forget the actor's name. The guy who played Rob Stark. Oh, in Game of yeah, Thrones, yeah, Turns yeah, out yeah. to be Blake's okay, brother. Yeah. I was distracted Richard, when Richard I realized Madden. though Richard that the Madden. two Blake yeah. brothers are on other sides of. It was just it was just a little much. I'm gonna say that we we had we had a, a sort of
2: you know uh, I feel like we're, we're all kind brothers. of a little underwhelmed. Like with a serious man, we didn't spend so much time criticizing, right? And maybe with even with Parasite, but with this one, mm-hmm. I feel like. Do you think that part of our um, our criticisms come from like the expectations that we had going into this film?
0: Uh, no, I mean like like I, I I can separate my expectations. I mean it certainly didn't meet my expectations, but I uh, once I kind of was into the movie for for one that that opening walk and talk was great. Like that was I was like all right I, I'm on yeah. for this ride. You know it was just once it was just after. A long period of the of the mission where I kind of was checking my watch, being like, "Okay, I don't know if I'm as on board with this as I wanted to be." So no, I, I I think that it it was in the form or, or or in the experience itself, not the expectations for me, at least. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: what you're asking, Austin, is a really good question, and I think it's something we're only going to know once time has passed, and, and, and by that I mean <laughs> it's the sort on of the movie other side. that's so. Yeah, listen, when we're dead, we'll know. On. Um, <laughs> You know, it's such a uh, – and I mean this in not a, in a pejorative way. There's a lot of spectacle involved in this film. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's involved in how it's shot, the experience of being there. I wonder if in a year or two it's a movie um, we'd want to rewatch or a movie that with repeat viewings over the years is going to stick with us. P- or it, it's one of those
0: movies that – it's it's going to be uh, talked about for, for a long time, I think, because it's just going to – be that example of you know one of those great war movies that is different and unique and so when people mm-hmm. are recommending war movies they're going to recommend oh yeah also
2: 1917 that's pretty cool different movie. okay so when we think yeah. about saving private ryan what do we think of we think of when awesome they... hell yeah love well yeah it. but fuck yeah but, spielberg rock it. yeah but 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 what we talk about specifically is when they get to normandy and it's that that beach scene mm-hmm. that is just That's fucking iconic. visceral and crazy, right? Yeah. When we think of um, Thin Red Line, what do we think of? We think of Boring! Poetic, we think of the poetic musings and things like that. When wow. we think of Band of Brothers, what do we think about? We think of it as being a fucking cool. band of brothers, bros, you know, protecting yeah. each well, other. And, and what are we going to think about when we think about this film? I think we're not going to think about the story. We're not going to think about, like, valor and courage and bravery. We're going to think about the technical proficiency, and we're going to think about Roger Deakins, which to me is... I'm not sure that that that's a bad thing, but I'm not sure that that is something that will place this film into the upper echelon of war films that we will remember. I think it'll be one of those ones where people are talking about war films, and then someone who's a you know cinephile will be like, "Oh, remember 1917?" and then they'll start talking about the technical proficiency of it.
0: Yeah, wow. but I think it is a must see. I think that for anyone that's into war movies, yes. like this I is a movie agree. you gotta see, and that alone makes it worth talking about for years. But yeah, in terms of The best, like my favorite war movie is Deer Hunter, you know, to me, that's like, like the whole package you get, you you know, you're in the, you're in the trenches, but you're also before and after war. Um, And, and so, yeah, that does it for me, but, but each war movie has their own flavor. Saving Private Ryan's about the mission, you know, Band of Brothers is about the, the epic mission, you know, And, and, and the, and the camaraderie. Uh, uh, and this movie is about the gritty in the trenches m- experience of like the moment to moment I'm going I have no idea what's around that corner I don't know if I'm going to get shot yeah. I've seen so many people and my friends get shot you know uh, uh, and and it's about that feeling and that is I don't think in any other movie that I can think of as much yeah. as this movie
1: well I think we're going to transition into a different segment of the podcast but I think we could all agree on two things Uh, one Everyone should go see this movie. We agreed on that. Totally. And two, the greatest war movie of all time is Attack of the Clones. (laughs) Um, So now that we've said those two (laughs) truths, uh, I don't believe that. I'm kidding. But, please, all of you, I know we have some some people that have been participating um, in, in the chat. I've only looked a couple times, but know that we're there. We see you. We love it. Shouts to Justin, who I saw there, and the person that was telling everyone about Jesus. You do what you got to do where you do it, I guess. Um, Don't shout out <laughs> to that
0: guy. You're encouraging I'm him. not
1: saying their name. I'm not saying their name. Although their name was inconsistent with their message, but we'll get into this off air. <laughs> no. um, but your thoughts matter a whole lot, so we want to hear them. Um, if you've seen 1917, if you're about to see it. Give us a call and let us know. So you can call us at 1-213-534-8807 or if you're uncomfortable with your own voice and it, and you don't want to, us to hear it that's fine um, movies at wisecrack.co no M there movies at wisecrack.co and, and we have some good oh go ahead Ryan
0: i, I was just going to say that that you know like like usually the ones we read on air will just take a snippet or the, like you know the key part but even if you re- write a really long novel we read that shit so so keep them coming some of the you guys write oh, really definitely. awesome well researched well thought out uh things on what we uh put out and so H- we appreciate yes. it
1: hell yes and i think yeah for anyone who's ever written or called and, and we haven't shouted it out we've looked at it it's been awesome there's just only so many times that we can cram in here. Right, so please exactly. keep calling keep writing we we seriously love it and i think we can all agree as the third thing we all agree on today i think we're consistently impressed by how thoughtful and and smart and fun everyone who listens to this podcast is so please 100%. keep bugging us Um, and y'all had some thoughts about a serious man. So let's get into a couple of those. And there's, um, one in particular that, that really dug something that Austin got into. So this is from, I hope I say your name right. If, If not, I'm sorry. I'll punch myself in the leg later. Uh, Cyprian. Um, so, uh, they enjoyed the discussion and they said this, um, let's see. I enjoyed a lot of your discussion about trying to link the beginning scene of the movie, uh, with the rest of the story. But I believe that that is kind of the point. They are not actually related, as none of the explanations given to Larry Gopnik are fully related to his predicament. To borrow Austin, that's use terminology of Lacan, of which I am totally not in a position to talk about, the way Larry is trying to encapsulate the real into the symbolic structures he knows, that is Judaism and physics, the same way the viewer is trying to understand the movie via traditional interpretations of movies. Uh, and thank you so much for that Never. question and thought. So yeah. So what do we think about that? The idea that there's this real and symbolic relationship and Larry is unable to interpret or understand the real via his dual symbolic structures of Judaism and
2: physics. First of all, I love the fact that you say that you are not in a position to talk about Lacan and then you do because- I know. It's,
1: it's so good.
2: That's actually very Lacanian and very Zizekian. So that's Ooh. fan-fucking-tastic. So thank you for that. Um, I actually really like what you said, that that maybe there is a sense, it's kind of like a a formal take on the film, that we are expecting that a film is going to give us a resolution, that we're expecting that a film is going to kind of create characters that we understand why they're in the situation in which they're in and what drives them and motivates them and then how that connects with if there is a prologue which in this film there is that somehow that's giving us ammunition to help us interpret the rest of the film but that really we don't get much that we can hold on to which then really seems to echo the themes that we talked about which are kind of cosmic absurdity there is no meaning if we're alone in the universe what is that that how how does that frame how we ask the questions that we ask? And maybe there are no answers. I think that's really good. And if that's the case, and the Coen brothers did that intentionally, like if they sat down and said the designing principle of this film is going to be this, then they're even fucking smarter than I already think they are. And that's fucking well, brilliant.
1: Yeah, and I think even from a Lacanian perspective to be – a little reckless with it i mean there's something to be said that that we see larry trying to via you know diagrammatic schemas make sense of reality that's what he's doing as a physics professor um, he's using numbers yeah. and visuals to try to map out how reality works to make it a comprehensive structure and the real just says nah i'm good, <laughs> I'm um, good. Do you that. you know man. like yeah it's and even like you know there's this point where I'm going to get real reckless here. It's like we have Cy Abelman representing this weird version of The Real in Larry's Dream where he's giving his lecture on his huge board and Cy Abelman is in class and he's like, you know, it's elegant, it's convincing, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he gets all in his face and then says he's fucking his wife.
2: Um, and then slams his head into the board a few times because that's what yes. The Real does. The Real just slams your fucking face into the wall over and over it does. again.
1: There's a, a recklessness in reality. So I think that's a great question.
0: Keep that up. Um, I
1: have, Another one. Oh sorry.
2: oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go.
0: Um, I, I was just going to add that that I, I think that <clears throat> I wasn't on that podcast with you guys, but um, A Serious Man to me is like a troll uh, for, by the Coen brothers, and it came out, I think, uh, notably right after Burn After Reading, which is also a mm-hmm. troll of a movie, where I think that they went through this little phase where they're just like, we want to just, we know, you know, people have expectations for just how stories should go, and we just want to say, fuck all that, and have no resolution, no real reason for why these things kind of happened. And then at least in the serious man, that's kind of what the theme of the movie is. And like, that's what it's mm-hmm. about is the randomness of life, you know, but burn after reading, they don't really set that up for you. When you watch that movie the first time, you're kind of like, wait, what, you know? And then at the end, <laughs> right. the CIA agent is just like, wait, what the fuck did we just learn here? You know, like, like that is, yeah. you know, they're trolling us. And I, I also think Ballad of Buster Scruggs is that to a degree with some of those, some of their shorts in their most recent oh, one. definitely. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that sometimes the Cohen brothers, they just say, you know what, we're going to just fuck with our audience in this movie. And then uh, and that's what a serious man is to me. So the Cohen brothers
1: are the only good trolls. I like that. Um, so we have another email about this from Sean. And this is a great email. There's a lot in here. Only going to get to a little bit of it, Sean, but there's so many great ideas. So thank you for this. Uh, so something Sean brings up, he says all through the movie, Larry is questioning why bad things are happening to him, even though he has done nothing to deserve it. But we as the audience can see that it is, ex- it is exactly his inaction and inattentiveness which is usually causing his misfortune. At the end of the movie, of course, his fortune seem to begin to change as he gets tenure. At this point, he then, he then takes the bribe. His first real decisive action, which is followed by what is likely his worst misfortune of the entire film. When he gets a call from his doctor, we presume there's cancer. Um, and and Sean says this can be interpreted in a few ways, but here's here are two that he wants us to, to consider. One is, this punctuates the idea that there really is no point to anything. His inaction wasn't always his misfortune. Nothing you do matters. There is no meaning. Stop looking. That's option one. Or two, Sean brings up. If you stay with the parallels of this versus the book of Job, you could say that unlike Job, Larry's faith has finally been shaken. The wager has been concluded, Larry has failed. When Job succeeds in his test, he's rewarded with good health and beautiful daughters. Larry's health and son are both taken from him. Interested in hearing your thoughts. That's from Sean.
0: Ew. Thank you, Sean.
1: Yeah. Fuck. any I know that's and 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 uh, that's I was like, "Oh, did, this is it's really good." So I I Hey, does, does anyone have a, a preference here or a take on the two options Sean gives us for, for how Larry's one moment of action in that film leads to misfortune?
2: Well, it's interesting to think about this in relation to what we were just talking about regarding courage in the war film, right? Like, mm-hmm. he is 100% not courageous because in order to be courageous— Either in the ancient sense, like in the virtuous sense, or in maybe this potentially other sense of kind of like being thrown into an impossible situation but still overcoming that situation, committing yourself to the cause. Co- he doesn't do that at all. He kind of is just like a leaf blowing in the wind, allowing anxiety to dictate mm-hmm. who he is and how he's going to be, and he's a very sort of weak figure because of that, right? So there's no courage whatsoever uh, in, in Larry, in his inaction and maybe that's the punishment, precisely because he refuses to commit himself to either the chaos or to being a virtuous, kind of courageous figure.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I like. I really like both of those options. I think I to to Sean's two two options have historically read it via that more simple nihilistic read, where nothing you do matters anyways. Um, but. The Job stuff's interesting. I'm less familiar with the book of Job. It's been a while since I read that. But I think whether or not that's what the Coens intended, because, of course, Ryan just had his great theory that I like about the Coens as trolls, um, I think that's a really interesting interpretation. Um, Mm. One more serious man question, and this one's kind of a little more fun. Um, Anthony wrote in and got into how we discussed the uh, suburban nature of a serious man, the way in which... I think, Austin, you might have brought this up, how it was a sort of ode or critique or uh, reflecting on the cultural void that is the suburbs. And once again, most of us are suburban, so so no judgment. Ryan, did you grow up in the suburbs? Um, right out, kind of, not really. Okay, kind of. but not. But you didn't grow up in a city?
0: No, right? I didn't, no.
1: Okay, cool. So none of us are our snobby city folk, let us tell you that. <laughs> um, but Anthony reflected on this as well and then asked this question... How would this movie change if it were set in a city or a rural environment? Uh, would it be as good and make its point as well? Uh, I think this is an interesting thought experiment. So any ideas on how a serious man would change or make a different point if it were set either in, let's say, New York or if it were set in you know, the farmlands of Montana?
2: Oh, my gosh. Do you think he'd be even more pathetic if it was in New York? Because New York is so alive and so active and so... Not not violent in a in a bad sense, yeah. but so aggressive that if I you... mean, yeah, yeah, go ahead, we're, it, we're, go ahead. If he's in New York, I mean, isn't like Uncut Gems kind of a version that's of this movie? Dude, I literally <laughs> was thinking that I was kind of yeah. like, is, is is Uncut Gems maybe what this film would well, be? Yeah.
1: My other thought would be if it was rural, then nature would be involved in a really heavy way. I could see a version yeah. of this movie that's more rather than someone struggling with the mundanity of suburban life someone struggling maybe to find meaning and purpose in nature or responding to a natural disaster or something like that. But, yeah, I think if it's in the city, it becomes more of a straight-up comedy because I don't know how Larry keeps up. Ryan, any thoughts on a serious man in a different environment?
0: Well, um, I mean, it's worth noting that that, that this is – literally like from their childhood you know so like it's they're from the midwest yeah. and uh so this is like a midwest suburb you know the oh, jewish community oh yeah there. it's
1: meant to literally be their jewish suburb from minneapolis they grew up in
0: yeah yeah so so like um you know it's kind of a, a obviously absurd question <laughs> um i think it would totally change it <laughs>
1: it's a fun one though yeah yeah,
0: yeah. i mean I, I think it'd be a little bit more similar if you did it to the rural one because it's you know it is about a small town and I'm, i assume you know you you it A rural uh, community is even smaller and more closely knit. Uh, But I don't, don't, yeah, rural Jewish Orthodox
2: communities. uh, Yeah, what were you going to say? No, I'm going to say I think it would be fundamentally different because I do think there's something integral about the malaise of middle class suburban life. That this film is exploring. That doesn't mean that there aren't anxieties that exist in the city, but they're very different. People are on top of people. Class relations are far more protracted because you have um, greater differentiations between uh, different divisions of where people are in their social and economic status. So I think it's very, very different just in its ethos in its in its world, right? And I do want to just give a quick shout out. And I know Michael loves this author as well, but there's a guy named Lars Eyer who we actually just did an interview on Owls at Dawn, which you guys know because I've talked about it a billion times. But Lars is a novelist slash philosopher, and he wrote a book recently called Nietzsche in the Burbs. And I just want to encourage everybody to go get this book. It is very similar in tone to a serious man in the fact that it's like pending doom is facing us, right? Um, the, the book references Melancholia a lot, uh, the, the film, the Lars von Trier film. And at the same time, it's about these teenagers growing up in the burbs and what is it like to grow up as a suburban youth facing issues of climate change and economic destruction, but also just the blasé nothing ever happens in the suburbs and what does that kind of produce? And I think there's some really interesting like philosophical and conceptual things to really work through that this film also touches on, but I think it's very explicitly suburban and it's almost like very particularly yeah. suburban. You I, know? I will
1: second Austin's reading recommendation, but also say uh, Lars's first set of books, which is a trilogy um, called Spurious, Dogma, and Exodus is my favorite set of books ever. Everyone should read those too. Maybe we can have a book club about them sometime. Oh, shit. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but that was that was great. Um, so just, and I'm just gonna, real quick, We these aren't really questions, but I just wanna thank um, Maxwell, who did some sort of research about the bar mitzvah and some Rabbi Marsh, Marshak stuff that I really dug, and it posited that maybe when Larry can't talk to Rabbi Marshak because he's thinking, he's actually thinking about the Jefferson Airplane song, which I think is funny <laughs> and a fun idea. And then <laughs> <That's> um, <great. laughs> there's uh, Justin did some, some really fun um, a sleuthing here. And Justin, who's a white suburban Minnesota male of Yiddish descent, so he gets this world, <laughs> brought up the point that when the Korean father, when Clive's father is kind of threatening Larry in the parking lot, when the goy neighbor comes and says is this man bothering you if you follow his sightline he's actually talking to the korean father implying that larry's the troublemaker um and no he's shit. he said he sent a link to the clip, um, so I just thought that was a really cool Whoa. catch. I don't I, who knows if that's what they're intending or not, but I thought that was really cool. Fine, so I wanted to thank those two for doing that. And then I'd say, <laughs> while while I would love to have tons of questions and comments about 1917, if anyone does have a pitch on the suburban or the urban version of a serious man, hit us up. And once again, uh, voicemail one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven email.